Welcome to Under 30, the podcast series by the Youth Partnership that brings the research results, explores trends in young people's lives and themes relevant for youth policy and practice. This is another episode in which we go deeper into different topics explored in the Youth Knowledge Book on young people, social inclusion and digitalization. This time we look into two chapters that discuss how digitalization is affecting young people's mental health and well-being. Our guest, Kathy Street, wrote a chapter in which she looks into young people's digital well-being, outlining current research findings about both positive and negative effects of digitalization, including problematic or excessive use of technology and some theories behind these findings. Ursula Kurven, our second guest, wrote an article in which she explores how young people who are marginalized and isolated can feel supported through the use of peer chat media, such as Yik Yak, social media app that enabled people to post anonymously in short message format similar to a text or Twitter. My name is Dariusz Grzemny and together with Lana Pasic from the EU Council of Europe Youth Partnership, we will be discussing the topic of young people's mental health and well-being with our guests. Enjoy listening. We are speaking today with uh, Ursula Kurven and Kathy Street about their chapters in the Knowledge Book on Social Inclusion, Digitalization and Young People. And today we'll be exploring within this topic young people's mental health and well-being within the digital spaces. So first, I'd like to ask Kathy maybe to present her chapter where she explored the impact of uh, digitalization and uh, also some of the dangers of digital spaces for young people's well-being. Okay. Thank you very much. So I wrote this chapter with two co-authors um, who have done extensive research in this field. Um, and what we do is to explore the context of growing internet use and why we now should be both recognizing the benefits but also some of the risks. So we set the context of growing numbers of young people who have an online presence, who own a smartphone, have a tablet and use the internet as a really a main way of their social lives. We then set out some of the research and talk about the risks, but also the benefits, which we argue often get lost in the concerns about contagion effects, the internet being harmful, encouraging people to harm themselves or do things online that may put them at risk. So we are very keen to, to say it's really important that we look at the potential and the benefits of this whole activity, but that we need to understand a lot more about its impact on how young people communicate and that there are undoubtedly risks that we need to be aware of. So we set out in some detail some of the work that Adrian Katz and Eamon El-Assam have done about how offline vulnerabilities can increase online risk and who are those young people, how do we help them, and we also then explain how what we don't always understand is the direction of the association between online life and offline activity. 
using examples of depression, anxiety, some of the big studies that the OECD, WHO and other bodies have done. And so that is very much the bulk of our chapter is trying to help people to understand that research and to think about what that means as a youth worker or somebody working with young people. We then talk about how there's been an enormous growth of things like e-therapies, computerized treatments, access to information, and how wonderful digitalization can be in helping young people who might be isolated or live in rural areas or just not have services that can easily get to, how it can really empower them to get in touch with other people, to take control of their health, to access good information. And then the final sections of the chapter set out, well, how do we move forward? What do we need to do here? We talk about the research that needs to happen, the things that are emerging and our thoughts on, you know, where things may need to be developed further. And we draw across Europe to look at some of the things that countries are doing to make standards, for example, about age-appropriate content, online safety. And I think our final message is that, you know, we need to modernise the way we think about this, that this needs a subtle approach, just rules and regulations is not the way, that we need to recognise the benefits as well as the risks. Thank you, Cathy. In your chapter, you also mention uh, a term problematic internet behavior or kind of problematic internet use. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that entails? Well, this is where we draw out some of the, the literature about how there are benefits, but there are risks. And some of the research has talked about excessive internet use or addictive internet use, which could be anything that basically is taking over a young person's life to the point that they are not engaging in normal social activities. The research tells us that lots of young people are on the internet for at least 20 hours a week, and that's probably in the moderate category. What we're talking about with the problematic is where it's taken over from everything else. But this again is where we get into the debate about is it that that's the problem or is it the context behind the young person that's actually the problem. So, for example, if a young person is socially isolated, is depressed and anxious, they may be using the internet as a way of trying to deal with those things quite positively. And they may get access to help and advice and information and they may boost their self-esteem. Alternatively, they may get into just picking up on negative feedback from peers, unhelpful comparisons with other young people. We talk about a theory that's quite widely mentioned in the research about fear of missing out, FOMO, and that actually if that becomes the driving force behind young people just accessing the internet, they are going to get into what we would term the problematic use, where it's actually not helping them, it's just driving and exacerbating all that anxiety and depression that led them there in the first place. Thanks, Cathy. And uh, Ursula covers uh, in her chapter uh, one of the examples of these platforms, uh, Yikyak, which is, I understand, no longer in use. And uh, she also touches upon these kind of problematic internet behaviors and some of the anxiety that the platforms may cause. So, Ursula, if you can uh, tell us uh, what is Yikyak and uh, how did it affect young people's lives? 
Yeah, it's what was Yik Yak. So it was an anonymous um, communication platform. So we think about um, WhatsApp or something like Facebook messaging and people can see who they're talking to. They can only access it if they have a direct contact with that individual. With Yik Yak, what you had to do was sign on. So it didn't record a name. It didn't necessarily record an a location, although it was possible to track that down and various research has been done around tracking that down. What it allowed was for um, a symbol, a green tent, a pink balloon, uh, a mushroom to appear. That was your symbol during the conversation. If you logged off and logged back on again, you get a different symbol. So it was impossible in a sense to track who was talking to who, which the young people, and it was aimed largely at students, so uh, centres for of universities or colleges or anything like that. Um, so it was aimed at students and they tended to use it. And I've looked at students all around the world to chat about all the things that bother young people normally. So, yes, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all the things you might expect, but also to speak with each other about, well, I'm homesick or I'm struggling with this essay or how do I find out what time the laundrette or the library is open? So my focus in the work I've done is around how we can use these anonymous apps to support young people. So the idea being I worked alongside the campus. They're called security team, but in reality, they're, um, they're more than that. They're a, a support team as well uh, and looked at their recordings alongside data that I pulled from the app to see if there was any correlation between the incidents talked about on the app and the incidents dealt with by the security force. As it happened, there was some overlap. I couldn't absolutely say one was definitely the other, obviously, because it's all anonymous. Um, but apart from young people engaging in some dubious behaviour, as I said, sex, drugs, rock and roll, Mostly what they wanted to do was help each other. I'm there for you. Yeah, tell me about it. I suffer with that too. And it was really a really positive experience to watch this unfold, shall I say. It was really interesting uh, for us. Uh, recently, we recorded uh, also a podcast on uh, virtual communities and how young people, young migrants and young refugees connect with, the, with each other using digital spaces and different tools. The digital media is more used by young people for the purposes of this support and connecting and uh, really trying to find the spaces that can serve as a kind of a network online, but also kind of anonymous network uh, where they can speak about different topics. But in cases where these networks uh, might not have such positive uh, effects or positive impact on young people, are there any support channels or networks uh, where young people can actually reach out and try to find help if they experience kind of anxiety or bullying or any kind of negative content in online spaces? I think that's a really important issue. And it's one of the things that we talk about in the chapter. And certainly from the work that I have done with Adrian, 
when we were looking across a number of areas of England about why young people were getting into difficulty online, one of the things that we were very struck by was how uncomfortable many people working with children and young people are about this whole area, that they feel they don't understand it and that they're t- the temptation to just try and clamp down on it and take away a young person's phone or confiscate their tablet was often their first line of response. And so one of the things that we were talking about was actually that just pushes it underground and makes the problem worse. And you don't actually then have any chance of finding out what's happening. So that one of the things we need to think about is how we empower the people who work with young people to be more confident to shift away from this sort of punitive or we just, as I say, make the regulations and clamp down on it to a much more empowering young people themselves to understand how to use this sort of medium safely, but also that they can then go to professionals if they've hit some sort of problem who have the knowledge about where to redirect them to. So that's what we mean about modernising thinking, that we need to shift the culture here Yes, we do need standards and we do need regulations and there's all sorts of things going on in the UK government at the moment and other countries about that. But we need much more of an open culture to talking about this and recognising, as I say, the benefits, not just the harms, but making it so that young people feel it's okay to go and say, look, I've got into trouble with this site. I don't know how to get off it or they're constantly you know battering me with messages what do I do but also that we need to know what the good places are which constantly change as well they go on and offline and change so it's that whole culture of of being able to talk about this and to recognize the benefits recognize the fun recognize that this is this is life rather than that oh no you can't do that I'm taking your phone away and you're grounded for a week yeah, what I was going to say is um, one of the things about anonymous communication we discovered was that the type of discussions that were held would vary according to the time of day. So the fact that a support office or a worker is around between nine in the morning and nine at night, depending on what the what the situation is, doesn't always mean that that's when the young people want to have that conversation. And um, speaking to someone who was waking up at three or four in the morning to collect data, uh, the conversations were very different and very much more raw and open at three and four in the morning. Um, so I think there's also something there about having having support workers available, even if they're peer workers. Um, so we have a, a mentoring scheme um, which trains students to support other students. Now, I'm not suggesting we should encourage students to be open at three and four in the morning to listen to other people's problems. But I do think that if um, young people are aware of where they can point other young people to during office hours, as it were, then we're in a better situation as well. So I agree entirely with Cathy. It's around educating workers who can then educate young people to better support themselves. I, I'm very happy that you are talking actually about the the positive role of the of the internet uh, in the lives of young people. Talking about support, talking about all the benefits that young people take from the use of the internet. And maybe I will ask something that goes a little bit beyond your paper. But I think that I have this reflection sometimes that 
the narrative uh, about the internet use of young people is really full of stereotypes and very often among people who are actually working with young people, uh, like teachers in school or, or youth workers even, uh, and parents. I was thinking, is there a way to actually change this narrative uh, or how to, to change this narrative about the internet use of young people? Well, as I say, I think for me, some of it comes down to training people, training staff, providing that as a part and parcel of what they do. And certainly if they're going to be providing e-therapies, they're going to need to be able to use the internet and do things like that. So that's one part of it. But I think the other piece of it is if you look at the media, if you look at what's in the papers and things, it's always the scare stories, the contagion that caused a load of young people to self-harm and things like that. So we need much more positive media awareness about the benefits, about the promotion of sites that are there that are doing really great things. I mean, I've done a lot of work with you in the UK with Cooth, who provide lots of online counselling services in schools and across other settings. And again, you know, how many people actually know of that? They hear about the awful rates and rises in self-harm and mental health rates are going through the roof and services are unable to cope and this and that. But do they ever mention in the same word that there are these brilliant online services? No, they don't. And most of what you, you read about online, digital, social media I think, comes over as very negative. It seems to show that young people are doing all these things that they really shouldn't be doing online where they should be studying or they should be going out. They don't see the enormous support value. And that for some young people, you know, they meet new friends, they learn new skills, they become much more able to navigate their way through information, the communication skills they learn, none of that comes out. So I think there's a real role here, a bit like we've tried to tackle mental health stigma with campaigns and adverts and and really opening the conversation up to, you know, something like that around digital in young people's lives. And that's not to say we shouldn't talk about the risks of the regulations, but it needs to be much more balanced and at the moment, I think it's it's not. It's very skewed towards online harm or we should shut this awful site down. So it's a shift that needs to happen. And I think a lot of this is also goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, the lack of confidence in adults to acknowledge that this is something that is here. I think a lot of adults, as I say, feel it's almost like they're losing control um, and again, I think that's a very difficult thing for some people to accept. So it's a shift. I would agree with what you're saying there, Kathy. Um, I think also it's a lot of organisations, as you say, are only aware of the mainstream sites, if you will, Twitter, uh, Facebook, all that kind of thing. But I think the control element is the absolute key if we can't control it they must be doing something in there that we we don't want them to do what frightens me about it is that in all this focus in keeping people safe online we've perhaps lost the idea of keeping people safe in real life as well um so yes you might find as i've seen um two 16-year-olds sitting next to each other, texting to each other rather than having a conversation 
But what can we do to facilitate those skills that allow them to interact safely in real life? Because they're much more likely to be um, playing an online game and shouting, kill, kill, come on round the left flank and all this kind of thing, than actually sitting there chatting about whatever it is, music, books. Do people read books anymore? It's a difficult thing to manage, but I think we need to hit that balance between real life and online life which again, Cathy, goes back to what you were saying. Ursula, you close your chapter uh, with the question, uh, should we monitor young people online? I think this also raises a lot of ethical concerns and questions uh, that you spoke about earlier. So would you like to reflect on that a bit? I, I do think it's difficult. And to be honest, it was very challenging to get this piece of work through research um, ethics. I think there are issues in any kind of participant observation. So if you're watching people, even if you're watching them in the street without them knowing that you're watching them, then you have to be really careful. What Yik Yak did as an app was it made very clear that anything that was posted to it became public property, which is how I was able to collect data. <clears throat> there were, of course, private chat rooms, so people could, if they wanted to, take it into a private room, I then couldn't see what was going on. And that was fair enough. I think as adults watching young people online, we, we can't be there 24-7. In the same way, we can't be there 24-7 in their everyday life. What are they doing at school? What are they doing when they're out on the street? So I think we have to be realistic about it as well. But I think attempting to watch everybody all the time would be enough to drive people insane. We hear stories about um, people mediating various chat services who have and video services who've had to deal with so much violence, pornography, just obnoxious stuff that it's driven them mad. So I think we need to be careful about that as well. <laughs> we need to trust young people. If if we're if we're working with, if we're talking to young people and our behaviour as adults shows them what it is to be reasonable, to behave in a thoughtful way, then surely they should take that on board. They will take that on board. If as adults we are not able to behave in that reasoned and thoughtful way and you only have to look at certain highly influential adults, I shall mention no names, who go online and do all the things that you might equally accuse a teenager or a child of doing. Um, so this sort of keyboard warrior idea, it, it, it's very, very difficult. I think if we model reasonable behaviour, we will expect to see reasonable behaviour. Thank you. And Cathy, you reflect uh, in your chapter on implications uh, of uh, digital use uh, for youth policy and uh, youth work practice, um, as well as kind of some of the necessary research that still should be done um, on this. So what is it that uh, youth work and youth policy uh, should take uh, from your findings? Okay, so at the end of the chapter, we talk through some of the big sort of policy directives. We talk about the United Convention on the Rights of the Child, who are going to put a comment about digital rights in their work as a way of trying to highlight that there is a right 
to a digital life in all of this. So how do we make that safe? And we run through very briefly some of the things that affect everything, not just young people. So GDPR laws, the regulations around online safety um, and the, the real attention to trying to make sure that harmful content for anybody is just not allowed to be left up without it being addressed. But I think what we go back to is, again, this whole issue of awareness and how do we help young people in particular to be aware of their rights to an on-life life, but also to not be subjected to breaches of their data being shared, that they have a right to confidentiality, that if there are things that they are accessing that are causing distress where are the routes where they can report that back so we I mean I'm not going to pretend this was exhaustive because it's actually quite difficult to find information about what is going on um, because I, I get a sense that there's a lot of talk but not necessarily a lot of follow through in policy aimed at really the empowerment end of things that an awful lot of the activity has been faced still at the moment on the regulation end so our call is very much to that need to really inform people, support people to become empowered to use this safely, aided and betted by governments taking this seriously and putting in place an infrastructure that is able to deal with the harmful aspects much more rapidly, much more consistently and in a way that people understand rather than it being a sense of things just being taken away and hidden. The only thing that I would add to that is something that I mentioned at the end of the chapter, which is if we're removing funding for face-to-face -face interactions and for youth centres from young people, then we must expect them to go away and meet somewhere. And that somewhere is cyberspace. So let's, let's put some funding into actually having young people meet face-to-face. I would absolutely support that 100% because for me, the concern has been that, again, what you see is the push to e-therapies and things like that is seen as a cheap option. And we cannot see that as, as the way forward. Yes, it's a great thing to offer, but it has to be on a par with, as Ursula just said, the importance of having the face-to-face -face services that are there and able to offer young people that sort of contact. And one thing I didn't mention earlier, but my research in this area has indicated a lot of young people may use the internet as a way of a warm-up and a try-out to see what shall I do if I go to see a doctor or a psychologist. And that, again, this is where we need what Derek was talking about. We need the join-up, that it's not just offline, online, as though these are two parallel universes. They need to join up and we need to recognise the impact of one on the other. But it certainly can't be seen as the cheap, quick solution to failing to fund children's services in the first place. Thank you, Cathy. Thank you, Ursula. I'm very happy that we finished with this statement because I think that it has to be repeated all the time, that there is no virtual world, that the, there is a world where we live and the part of it is offline, part of it is online, but it's the same world. We actually do 
almost the same things here and there. No, so there is no really difference, especially for the in the lives of young people. I think there is no difference in in in, in the online and the offline. So yeah, we need this kind of change of of thinking and perceiving the internet, not always as the evil, but as a part of our life. That's that's it. Thank you again. We are promoting the book all the time in our podcast. This is the third podcast about the book. So if you are interested in Ursula's and Kathy's chapters, it's chapter 8 and chapter 10 in the book. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Bye-bye. And soon there is another episode about other chapters in the, in the book. 